Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Airmic Talks, your fortnightly podcast from the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. All the feedback and statistics since the end of Airmic Fest has shown the entirely virtual event to have been a tremendous success. And one of the advantages of going digital is that the vast majority of the content produced for the conference remains available on the Airmic Fest platform until March 2021. One of the areas that I recommend further exploration is the Knowledge Hub, home to 42 20 minutes or less video presentations split across the four categories of thought leadership, technology, life skills, and captive insurance. If you are registered for AirMicFest, then you can still log in to airmicfest.com to access the Knowledge Hub and Mainstage Archive and all the other content on the platform. If you did not attend the live week, then you can still register and access all the content for a cost of £50 plus VAT, and I strongly recommend you do so. There is just so much content to discover. We're going to focus on the Knowledge Hub for the next 15 minutes, however, so I am featuring short segments from four of the presentations that you can find there. In our first segment, we hear from Sarah McNally, partner at law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. Sarah produced a hub session on liability and contract and how insurance managers can gain certainty over whether an event will be insured and how to manage any gaps. Here is a clip from her opening to the hub session. Now, it's perhaps an obvious fact that contracts govern almost all commercial interactions between businesses. We don't even need to think about that. It's obvious. However, contracts by definition impose specific obligations and generally involve what we would call economic loss rather than physical damage or personal injury in the event of breach. And of course, as a very general proposition, damages for contractual liability are based on what you might call Hadley and Baxendale type liability i.e. a party will be liable for losses which the contract parties should have foreseen or were in their reasonable contemplation. So that test does not distinguish between, for example, economic, pure financial losses or physical damage and personal injury. Again, it's, it's almost so obvious as to not require saying, but it's important for what I'm going to talk about for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. And why is it important? Well, insurance policies will often actually exclude or limit contractual liability and or liability for economic losses. So the two very types of liability which your business may find it's exposed to under its normal day-to-day contracts. And the divergence between these two and the approach each takes always strikes me as a challenging one from a risk management perspective. Now, of course, it won't always be possible to make sure that your insurance policies are completely back to back with your contracts. And of course, the fact that your insurance policy does not respond to any particular contractual liability will not generally give you any defense in a claim um, under contract. But it is worthwhile considering what type of exposures may or may not be covered so that you can understand where the gaps are and further so you can determine what clauses to look out for in insurance policies so as to maximise the prospect of these contractual exposures being covered. And even more importantly, so that you know where the gaps are and they can be managed by alternate means. Now, very broadly, insurers may exclude or limit to some extent liability which arises in contract. In addition, either expressly or impliedly, they may exclude liability which is not for or in respect of personal injury, property damage or similar, i.e. for economic loss. Now these two concepts may overlap to some extent, 
because tortious liability more generally arises in respect of property damage or personal injury. However, there may be some differences and in some circumstances, there may or will be tortious duties arising in respect of economic loss. And an example is a professional who will often owe a duty, a tortious duty in respect of economic loss. Well, thank you to Sarah. And certainly that full hub session is a very useful breakdown of the kind of considerations insurance managers need to make when assessing their insurance contracts. Next up, we have Catherine Johnson and Managing Director at the Cambridge Code, Ian Isoton. Catherine interviews Ian about how psychoanalytical tools can be used to manage the human element of risk. And we join them as Ian outlines how we are seeing HR and risk professionals increasingly working together. Certainly when I was a HR director and we were having more and more conversations about the human element uh, of risk and, and when I've come into Cambridge Code we found that that is definitely something that where the worlds of risk management and HR are increasingly converging. We're starting mm-hmm. to see a lot of businesses adopt a more joined up approach to people risk, bringing together the more traditional risk management world with a new focus on the risk to your organisation from people factors. It seems like there are obvious benefits to the more holistic approach, um, you know, better employee experience, improve productivity, reduce cost of management risk, that sort of thing. Um, but what does that mean in practice, I suppose, for the organisation, for the people involved in the process along the way, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, the first thing that springs to mind is I think there's a need for people to work in a different way. Um, certainly from a risk point of view, collaborating more than ever uh, with colleagues in HR. And I think that will mean for many people that they will need to develop new soft skills to move from working as a support function to a true business partner. When I was at, um, in the city working at River and Mercantile, we oversaw investments and advised on pensions. And as HR director, I was increasingly working very closely with both the head of legal and compliance and the chief risk officer. So many of the things that they were both interested in involved, really fundamental people risks. Okay, so it's, it's that, mainly that piece about people development and different ways of working. Yeah, that's a big part of it for sure. But there's also a need to think about new types of people risk. For example, managing the risk to organisations' reputation uh, or financial performance, which comes from individual actions or conduct. You can probably all think of many famous examples where people risk has led to huge reputational damage. There are a number of current ones, but perhaps the most famous one uh, of recent times was at Bearings, where a sole individual who did not want to admit a problem took greater and greater risks. So many businesses are now starting to think about, with their prevailing culture within the business, how this influences, the, one way or another, the way in which uh, they operate. And that's certainly been a focal point for many regulators uh, over recent years, and actually forms a pretty fundamental part of the new senior manager and certification regime, for example. And I think also, if you think about, you know, what we've experienced very recently with the changes to working patterns from COVID and the pandemic and working from home, you know, does this remote working potentially accentuate these risks of people challenges? Does it make it harder for people to manage risk when people are away from the office, spread out and perhaps more invisible? And it's not so easy to see what they're doing. And I think also, There's a longer term aspect, such as whether you have the right people within a business to actually respond as markets change and adapt to new technologies and adapt to steer the organization into the future. Again, a really famous example was Kodak that went from producing old fashioned film uh, and then, you know, 
when digital cameras came along, they were obsolete, but they managed to reinvent themselves. Many businesses will need to reinvent themselves and the pandemic's probably um, really speeded up that process. And there's always a people risk if people can't cope with those changes and can't adapt to it. Thank you to Catherine and Ian. And that was just a small teaser of what to expect from one of the most fascinating of the Knowledge Hub sessions. Let's go to James Martin, Global Client Management Leader at AXA XL now. James will be well known to many of our AMIT members. And in this short clip from his Hub presentation, he discusses five golden rules of innovation. So let's start by taking a look at my five golden rules of innovation. Now, I'll be honest, these are pretty basic and pretty obvious, but that's kind of the point with golden rules. Firstly, start with why. Why are you innovating? What are you trying to achieve? What do you want your outcome to be? What will derive value for you or your business through innovating? What's the purpose of all of this? It's absolutely crucial in my view to understand why you're doing what you're doing before you start. You have to have a purpose that means something, that gives you focus and keeps you motivated and can help you drive the whole thing forward. Secondly, what's your problem? This is one of the main reasons why projects fail, the lack of real understanding of what the problem is that you're trying to solve. It is so important to invest the time before you start anything to really define and understand the problem. If not, you risk either finding a solution to the wrong problem or not finding a solution at all. Number three, build your team carefully. We'll come on to talking about partnerships later on, but for now, suffice to say how important it is at the outset that you consider who the stakeholders in your project should be, both from the perspective of who can help you reach and build a solution, and also who will benefit from that solution as well as people who will either help you or block you along the way. Number four, don't start at the solution. This is something that we're all guilty of on a regular basis, thinking that we know exactly what the solution is to our problem without going through the process first. It's often human nature to jump to the things we know and assume that they will be the answers that we're looking for. However, it's dangerous, and I'll give you an example. Two years ago, I was asked to visit a logistics warehouse owned by one of my clients. They had been experiencing a number of losses due to their forklifts, either colliding with stock or with people. And they wanted us to bring in Oxbotica, our autonomy partner, to put sensors on the forklifts so that when they got too close to the stock or to people, they would stop automatically and not rely so much so heavily on the driver. The client was absolutely convinced that this was the right solution to their problem. So a team of us went out there for a site visit. As soon as we arrived, there were a number of things that were apparent. Firstly, the relations between the business owners, my client, and the team on the ground were poor. And so no one was listening to each other and no one was working effectively together. Secondly, in the warehouse itself, there were no floor markings or protective barriers which could show where the trucks could go safely and not come into stock or people. Thirdly, the driver's conduct when in charge of the vehicles was appalling. There was no beeping as they went round corners. They were driving too fast. They were texting on their phones whilst they were driving. And then finally, we worked out that if we put sensors on the forklifts, 
because of the layout of the warehouse, they would be stopping so often that the productivity in the warehouse would be severely affected. So it was quite clear to us that sensors were not the solution to the problem that we had. The solution was very simply to work on the staff relations, to put in place a driver training programme and to better mark out the warehouse itself with some paint on the floor and some safety barriers. Not a sensor or a robot in sight and a much cheaper solution all round. Finally, my fifth golden rule is that failure is an option. There is nothing wrong with failure. In fact, failure is a good thing because we learn from it. And actually, we probably learn more from failure than we do from success. The most dangerous thing isn't failure, it's the fear of failure. And if failure is a problem and if you're afraid of it, you'll never get started. You'll never take a risk and try something new and you'll never innovate. Thank you, James. And do make sure you tune in to the rest of his presentation where he presents several case studies of how the insurer has produced innovative solutions with clients. So last but not least in our showcase of the brilliant 42 presentations to be found in the Knowledge Hub is a discussion on COVID, captives and employee benefits by Rob Brown, UK Regional Director and Valerie Lebrun, Head of Pricing and Underwriting at Zurich Global Employee Benefit Solutions. In this segment, Valerie outlines the impact we have already seen the pandemic having on captive employee benefit programmes. Yeah, so when it became clear that COVID-19 was a pandemic, uh, captives were actually keen on understanding whether the employees were fully covered uh, and that there were no pandemic exclusions. Um, so we had to go through each countries, ask our partners, so the insurance companies, uh, whether pandemics and more specifically COVID was excluded or covered in the coverages in place. Um, in the majority of the cases, um, COVID, especially for death mortality risk, was not excluded. In some instances, we have seen exclusions for medical coverages. However, in the majority of the cases, the insurance companies have decided to waive that exclusion as a market practice. In, in some people's minds, uh, pandemics are associated actually with increased mortality rates. However, what we have seen with COVID-19 is that it does increase the mortality, but only of two types of population. On one hand, it's increasing the mortality of people that are aged 70, 80 years old or more. Uh, but typically these people are not actively employed um, uh, and they wouldn't be covered by uh, by captives uh, or at least in group life insurance cover, for instance. However, in some countries like, for instance, Brazil, Mexico or the US, um, we have retirees that are covered. Uh, and then in those cases, this increased mortality would impact the captives. The other population that is also impacted by increased mortality um, are the lower social classes. We see this coming now in our portfolio um, and slight increase in number of claims. Um, however, I must say that for both populations of so the older and also the lower social classes, the usual claim amounts are low. What we see on the other end, though, is that for accident cover, the claims are reducing or we aren't seeing as many claims as usually and that's mainly due to the fact that people are confined staying more at home and traveling less. 
So hopefully those four segments have given you a really nice idea of the diversity and expertise to be found in the Knowledge Hub. And if you haven't already visited the Knowledge Hub on the Air McFest platform, please be sure to do so to get as much value out of your Air McFest ticket as possible. And if you are not already registered and don't currently have access to the Air McFest platform, then you can still get a pass on airmcfest.com for the price of £50 plus VAT. All the content on Air McFest will be available until March 2021, so get online and make the most of it. Mm-hmm.